Today's show is brought to you by Norton Core. If you have a Wi-Fi internet at home, and of course you do, then you have a router. And if you have a Wi-Fi router, you should protect it. Norton Core will help you do it. Norton Core is a secure Wi-Fi router for your home. You can find out more at Norton.com. And if you go to Norton.com slash recode, you'll save 30 bucks off the Norton Core router. You pre-order before July 1st. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am here with Rich Greenfield. If you listen to this podcast, you have almost certainly encountered Rich Greenfield before somewhere on CNBC, tweeting, maybe uh, quoted in one of the many stories about this business. I talk to Rich periodically. I see Rich all the time. Rich, say hi. Hi. Rich, what's your actual job besides being a tweeter? Our job is to put buy-sell holds on media and technology stocks. So we have to figure out whether stocks are going to go up or down. But you you work for? BTIG, which is a global uh, financial services firm, broker-dealer uh, in New York. Uh, and our you know we have 500-plus employees, and the firm is trying to help clients make money. You're a media analyst. Correct. Media and tech version. analyst. Media and tech. A lot of media. Well, what's the difference between media and tech now? I mean, That's the premise of this of this very podcast and my job for the last 20 years. Worlds are kind of colliding. Rich, I was Googling you earlier this morning. I found your LinkedIn. comes up right away. Describes you, so this is your choice, as a media futurist. That sends off alarm bells for me. I don't in think in a good way or a bad way? Not, not the good alarm bells. I think people who describe themselves as futurists usually don't have a day job. But you do have a day job, so I, do. I can verify you're getting paid. Now, you're not getting paid to attend this thing. No. You are, like we said, one of the most sort of prominent voices in the, that media tech intersection. So that's a good thing for you, right? Yeah. And look, that's the, kind of your job, right? It's it is. to be out there. We're supposed to – look, I think the best way to learn is to talk and meet with people. And I think the more we talk to people, whether it's you or industry executives or investors in the space, the more we learn, the more we think. The more people we meet, the bigger our network. And so – uh, for us, it's all about trying to build that network and trying to build around the th- a set of thesis because I think the thesis is what drives good ideas on the long and the short side of stocks. Do you have a big overarching thesis about media and tech other than that they're combining? Well, obviously, they've been combining. It's funny. I started uh, – we're the building we're broadcasting from is 85 Broad where I had my first job at Goldman Sachs. And my first week at Goldman Sachs, you know, with this, it was the communicopia. You know, had just been created the year before, the whole concept of Communicopia, which I don't know how many years it's been, but I think I started at Goldman in Communicopia 3. And if you're so, old you're, you'll, you know, and or did this sort of thing, you'll know that Communicopia was the big Goldman Sachs media conference. Sure, which was built around the concept of convergence. Yeah. So, you know, look, there's obviously that convergence continues to play out every single day. But I think what's changing now so fundamentally is how mobile is changing people's perceptions of what has sustainability in media. And by that I mean, you know, it used to be that uh, you created great content, you, you know, launched a cable network, you know, you got to 40 or 50 million subs and you had really good content and you were really successful. There's like no rule book for mobile. Everything is being rewritten. There is no kind of, you know, we've seen multiple cycles. You think about in you know the VHS cassette to the DVD, you think about this you know tape to CD. Everything is being ripped up in media right now, and I think the the mobile phone is so disruptive. Obviously, to lots of industries, but purely looking at media, when you have something like YouTube or you have something like Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat, I mean the amount of content that's being consumed 
with no paywall changes everything. Right. To put a fine point on it, the amount of content that's being consumed for free, right? Um, in most I'm listening cases, to this podcast. I'm assuming free. for free. For free. That's should, pretty different. For it too. Yeah. Yeah. No. So the, the definition of what success is in media is different right now. If you're skeptical, you might say, yeah, this is all going to sort of revert back to a mean. This stuff is not going to grow infinitely forever on trees. At some point, someone will pay. A consumer will pay. There's actually a big movement towards subscription right now, right, in terms of models. You've got a lot of folks saying, actually, we would like the consumer to pay 10 bucks for this. Sure. But imagine you know, the world where you had you – know, we'll think back just two years ago. Your average cable network will take Discovery Channel or USA Network. Um, doesn't really matter. You had 100 million subs paying you X amount per month. And what was fascinating is it didn't actually matter if you wanted the content or ever even watched the content. You know, imagine 100 million people paying for this podcast, Correct. whether they actually listen to it or not. It's a good business. Yeah, it's a great business. You can imagine why you wouldn't want to give it up. And this is one of your, your theses right now, right? You are very bearish on the cable and the cable industry. That's no longer a, a unique idea. But cable were, networks. Cable networks. Let's, let's be very clear. The, the cable the, system the, business right. is a very different The people business. who own the pipes, that's interesting to you. The people who are bundling together ESPN 1 through 8 and sure. trying to get 14 bucks for that plus a bunch of other stuff you don't want. You're that's a tough that. business. That's a tough business. Up until a few years ago, most smart people said, that's a really great business. Maybe the growth is, is going to reduce, but it's a pretty good business. And, and uh, we can talk about that for a bit, actually. When I was getting around to your introduction or meandering through it, one of the other things I wanted to point out is not only are you one of the most prominent voices in this space, there are a lot of folks, particularly those, I think, who work at old media, at TV networks, at cable networks, really upset with you. They dislike you. I don't know, either personally or professionally. So much so that uh, they, I think, got Michael Wolf, the Hollywood Reporter, to write an entire piece dedicated to you. And, and what a, I don't know if you're a bad person, if you're a bad analyst. Maybe he said, he said well, actually, you're closer to a journalist. Which I think that was a compliment, I think. Yeah. No, I think it was a compliment. It was I... pretty great. He, this, is, this is from February 2016, no, um, where he single-handedly, he says, you are... Um, here, I'll just read the quote. No one may have contributed more to the decline of traditional TV stocks this past summer and fall and to the rise of the new tech-centered TV industry, especially his most passionate cause, than this analyst. That's tremendous praise, it sounds like. You were able to crater stocks single-handedly? You were able to push Netflix up single-handedly? We're just trying to help people make money. <laughs> it's really that simple. Why do you think you engender uh, this kind of enmity? Look, I think we're trying to... We're really focused on honesty, intellectual honesty. We're not, you know, we're we're really willing to admit our mistakes. Um, you know, obviously, when we have strong opinions, we're loud and we keep banging the drum on them repeatedly. I think it's very hard, especially when you're negative on companies. You know, take something like Disney, where we've been, uh, we were, I think, focused on the ESPN challenges way before the market was. It's hard to get anyone to pay attention, especially on the short side. There's a natural lift in the market. For companies, and so Again, if you don't follow the market, you're saying it sounds counterintuitive to some people, but it's harder to get paid attention to, to a negative story about a stock than a positive story because there's not that many people that are negative. And so when you are this is, negative, this is within the world of finance, right? There's plenty uh, of people who say the no. Broader but, media, I'd well, say the broader but, media doesn't pay attention until you really start. I mean, you have to, you know, you think about recent events. You know, if you look at some of the big stories that have broken, it's hard to make that story unless you get really loud. And I think, you know, you need to make a lot of noise to get people to pay attention to you. And obviously, we're not always right, but we try to be right far more than we're wrong. And when we do make mistakes, we admit uh, we're wrong. But look, 
nobody ever likes when you criticize what they're doing. I think some companies actually are far better at handling criticism than others. Some just don't like it. And that's, look, every company's welcome to their own way of running their business. Uh, but we're not going to stop doing what we do. Do you think it's your opinion that bothers them or, or you're that loud? I guess the other thesis of this this Michael Wolf piece from a year and a half ago is that you're quoted too much and that everyone quotes you. And, and he's also sort of running down people like me who are journalists who quote you a lot. Actually, I don't quote you very much. But a lot of other people do. You're, you're always available to be quoted. He seemed to think that's also bad in some way. He's entitled to his opinion. But there's lots of other analysts who do what you do, right? Most of them are fairly anonymous unless you're really in the business. Even then, you might know, not know them that well. And if you're really in it, you might know that, all right, Todd Younger at Bernstein is also sort of bearish, but he's not quoted nearly as much. People couldn't identify what Todd looks like. A lot of people can identify what you look like. When, when did you decide, I want to make noise, I want to be more prominent, this is part of my job, is to, is to be better known? I think it was you know, looking at the... How do you really learn? You know, I think the best way to learn is to be a magnet for information. And so, you know, in many ways, the louder you are, the more visible you are, the more the easier it is is to gain access to. You get a flywheel. People come to you because they recognize you. This is a complete flywheel. And you know, I think the more visible we are, the um, more information and networking we can do. I mean, I'm sure the same reasons you and I run into each other at so many of the same events is that. There is that network effect of information, and uh, you know it's leveraging that. The bigger your network, the more information you can leverage, and hopefully, the smarter decisions we can make on stocks to make people money. I think if you weren't around, most people wouldn't know what BTIG is. Is the fact that you're working at a fairly unknown financial firm is that another reason that you have to be that much louder? If you if you were at Goldman doing what you're doing, would you be quieter? You know, BTIG is now kind of the I think we're like the 13th largest broker-dealer in the world uh-huh. in terms of shares traded. Uh, you know, obviously in the media world, you probably wouldn't, you know, hear that much about a broker-dealer. You know, we don't do it specifically for, you know, raising BTIG-specific awareness. But that is kind of your job and part of it, though, right, is, is, to, is to raise your profile so people might want to come through BTIG and do business with them? Look, our job is if we make clients money, they'll want to do business with BTIG. And we're trying to help our clients make money. Yeah. The more money we make them, hopefully the more business they're going to want to do. Honestly, it's, it's very client-focused. So leaving aside Disney and the TV guys, on the, on the companies you're covering uh, on the digital side, sure. who are you most bullish on right now? We're talking well, – well, things, I think if things you look change, back, right? So we're recording this in late May. No, You'll probably hear this I think this if you were to look back on the last, call it, 18 months – We've been highly critical of Disney and, you know, really excited about what we see happening at Netflix. And we really see those very much – that thesis is joined at the hip, right? Like there is more and more content flowing without the bundle. More and more subscribers are are not only just watching but paying for Netflix. They're getting stronger and it's actually causing the legacy bundle – to be under more and more pressure. So, so Netflix's that, success comes at Disney's pain. Well, I, I won't say it like that. I'd say Netflix's success, Amazon's success, Hulu's success comes at the expense of the legacy multi-channel bundle. The greater the multi-channel bundle 
comes under pressure. Right. Who's the biggest loser? Who has the most tied to that legacy bundle? You mentioned the $14 that Disney gets throughout, you know, ABC, Disney, Disney Channel, ESPN. Right. The biggest loser, if the bundle breaks, you know, we started the hashtag good luck bundle. If that bundle breaks, I should have worn my T-shirt. If that bundle breaks, Disney loses more than anyone else. Even though, by the way, uh, uh, Netflix is paying Disney a bunch of money right now. Uh, for access to some of that content. Absolutely. Disney made a very big mistake, and I think if you talk to people inside of Disney, they very much regret the deal they did. They've really empowered Netflix in a way And this is what a lot of the networks feel, right? A lot of the networks for a couple years were happy to sell Netflix their, their leftovers. And in Disney's case, not just their leftovers, they're they're, good stuff. They're good stuff, but they said, well, they're paying. Their their money's good. It's great. Um, Let's take advantage of these digital guys while we can. And then some others were – it gets even worse than that, right? Because some of them made that decision that you just said. Some of them said, oh, my God, everyone else is selling. If we don't sell, our margins will be worse or our profits will be worse. So even though we know it's the wrong thing to do for the business, do we sell or not sell? And it's total prisoner's dilemma of it's going to happen with or without you. And so we'll sell too. And then Netflix actually has all of this content. And they can say, you know what? We actually don't need that. We don't need that. And you know what? We've learned what people like. We're going to go out and start making stuff ourselves like Stranger Things and 13 Reasons right. Why. And we don't even need your content and, as much as we used and to. And they're a couple years into it. When they started, everyone said reasonably, well, what does Netflix know about making content? That's a whole specialized thing. And they don't know what they're doing. And they've got a guy who used to run a second ring uh, video chain in charge of their content business. They have made it look fairly easy. Um, you throw a bunch of money at stuff. You buy a bunch of stuff that's already made that people don't want. And then you start making your own. And eventually people watch some of it. Sort of like HBO back in the day, right? Or AMC. Remember, HBO used to be old people's movies. AMC used to be American movie classics. And, you know, remember FX. How about FX? If you had John Lamscraft on here, right? FX used to be Ally McBeal and X-File reruns. And, you know, you think about it. Everyone starts in the media food chain or the entertainment ecosystem with other people's old stuff. Right. ESPN was log rolling. Sure. Literally. <laughs> Literally. And, and Australian rules football. Right. But then you build up to bigger and bigger content that you own and control. And I think that's actually an important distinction that you just raised. ESPN really still is a buyer of other people's content. I think what is really interesting about Netflix, just like what HBO has done over the last you know 15 years, is they actually own and control that content and increasingly own and control it globally, which creates a tremendous amount of, of leverage and value creation that I think is an important point. It's funny because a few years ago when you looked at a media business, if they owned a studio, Warner Brothers or Paramount, generally you didn't factor much of that into it, right? What you really factored was what's their distribution look like? What's the health of their cable networks? Now things have flipped, right? Now things are much people are much more interested in, in movie studios again and their content libraries and what you can do with that. Do you th- assume this stuff is sort of cyclical or pick a different metaphor, there's a pendulum and things swing back and eventually distribution becomes very important again? Let's look at the word distribution. Like, what's the definition? You know, it's funny. I I used to think of distribution as being – because obviously there's content creation, which is Disney makes a movie or Disney makes a TV show. There is this programming and packaging layer called cable networks that kind of sometimes gets talked about as distribution, but it's really just an aggregation vehicle. And then you actually have the true distribution, which is the pipes that gets it to your house. Right. The pipe seems like it's increasingly being commoditized, right? You know, whether it's uh, broadband to your home or wireless, we have lots of choices increasingly for wireless, how you get it. The the hard part in, in a wireless world is like, 
how do you get an app that people use every day? Like nobody's using Watch ESPN on their phone. Nobody's using the USA Networks app. I mean, all of the media companies are struggling to get kind of that destination or that kind of, I want to say app slash platform on mobile. The the platforms on mobile that we all use every day, whether we're talking Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, Google, et cetera. And there's only a handful of them that have that kind of usage. And they're dominant in a very different way than you had on the TV set where you used to have, you know, lots of aggregation points, lots of programmers. And, you know, that that's a meaningful change. You know, will it ever swing back to where, you know, the, the networks have value? Like, I don't think so. You know, the, the reason is, is you've got people with really deep pockets. I mean, I think the most important thing you said is look how easy Netflix is making it. And it's not easy, right? I mean, you have to spend Netflix, billions of dollars. Let's just be clear. They're spending eight billion you know, dollars just this year. But it turns out that if you can write a check like that, and I'm sure this is what everyone at Google and Apple and clearly Amazon's already doing as well, there doesn't seem to be a barrier to entry other than cash. Well, what's amazing, right, is four years ago, four years and three months to when this podcast airs, House of Cards came out for the first time. So effectively, a little over four years ago, there was no original content that mattered at all on Netflix. And four years later, there's more content than anyone could humanly watch. And it's all just about spending money. So talent, content, anyone at NBC, anybody at, you know, any talent that's out there is going to want to work for someone who has massive distribution, can get you the same awards and visibility and success and fame that you got in the old world, and will pay you the same, if not more. If not more. Ask Dave Chappelle and and Chris Rock. We're getting 20 million. They're laughing all the way to the bank, right? This is a good time to, to hear from an advertiser who's going to help pay for this awesome free content. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by LegalZoom. If you want to run your own business well, you need to pay attention to details. You've got a lot of stuff on your plate, and that's why you need help from LegalZoom. More than a million Americans have used LegalZoom to start their businesses. You probably already knew that. But LegalZoom services go way beyond starting a business. They've got a nationwide network of attorneys that can help you answer questions about things like trademark, employment laws, lease agreements, all that's complicated stuff. And you need help and you need to save time, which is why you need to go to LegalZoom so you can grow your business. You'll get the legal help you need and they won't bill you by the hour because LegalZoom is not a law firm. Go to LegalZoom.com today and enter the code MEDIA in the referral box and you'll get special savings. That's LegalZoom.com. Use the promo code MEDIA so they know we sent you. Today's show is also brought to you by Norton Core. If you have Wi-Fi internet at home, then you have a router. And if you've got a Wi-Fi router, you need to protect that Wi-Fi router. You don't want bad guys getting access to your data, your credit card info, your family photos, other photos. Norton's owned by Symantec. They're the leader in digital security for more than 30 years. And they built a really cool-looking Wi-Fi router called Norton Core. It turns your home Wi-Fi network into a digital fortress. Norton Core discovers connected personal devices and helps secure them when it identifies a vulnerability. If a device is breached, Norton Core quarantines the threat and has parental control so you can decide when and where your kids go on the internet. It's got a 1.7 gigahertz dual-core processor, which means it's really fast. You can get the security you need at the speed you want with Norton Core. You go to norton.com slash recode. Save 30 bucks if you pre-order before July 1st. That's norton.com slash recode. I'm back here with Rich Greenfield, who has promised to do this all day, but I think we'll do multiple podcasts. There's you, Jason Hirshhorn, Bob Lefsitz. These are the guys who want to go like hours long podcasts. But we should do one hour. with Jason. I don't think the internet is big enough for that. 
We could try, though. I love it. Can we talk a bit about, about your job, how you do your job, what your job entails? Um, you've been doing a version of this, I think, all your life, right? You've been in, an analyst. 23 years. So right out of school, right out of right school. Out of undergraduate. How, do you, how do you get to Goldman right out of school? Uh, right place, right time. There's a lot of people who want to get to Goldman, right? This is sort of the, the – that's the mountain, right, for a lot of people. It's, they're, they're running the government. Um, surprisingly, under the Trump administration, maybe it was uh, radio broadcasting at Brandeis. That's that you R- running the lo- running the local radio station WBRS. I mean, that was wh- that's where I started talking into a device like this. You started doing that, and then did you wise up and go, "Oh no, 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 no! I don't want to be creating content for a living. I want to be on the financial side of this." Uh, you know, look, I I think the two sides of my brain was either sports broadcasting or you know working in finance, and finance was just uh, something I was passionate about. So I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but just explain the model of, of how your business works broadly, right? So are you being paid based on the volume of trading that goes on within BTIG? Do you get paid based on the research notes you put out? How, what's the, how do you define success based on what you do? Adding value. Right. I mean, it, it's literally – and I'd love to fine-tune it more for you. But it honestly is adding value. But you can't come to your bosses at the end of the year and go, I added a lot of value, right? you got to point to something. Sure. But I, you know, I think you, you can obviously look at the traction we've had you know, with research calls you know, and with the impact we've had on the overall business that that generates. So uh, it's you, fairly – I think honestly it may seem complicated from the outside. But from the inside, when you actually see – the impact that you know meaningful research has, the value add of the research. So you can point and say, look, I was early on ESPN and being bearish on Disney, and that has led to traction, and we can sort of correlate here. You look, Disney, I mean, we put a sell on Disney at 111 and a half back in December of 15. I think people thought we were crazy. I mean, we got death threats. I mean, it was crazy, the, the pushback we got. And, you know, Disney's still trading below that level. So despite a massive positive move in the market, look at the move in the positive move in Netflix. Being negative on Disney, obviously it's bounced off the bottom, but being negative on Disney has either saved investors, meaning our clients, yeah. substantial money if they're long only and can only buy stocks. If they can short stocks, this has been a tremendous relative underperformer that's made them a lot of money, you know, relative to other things they could have bought. And because you're making calls, you get calls wrong when you, when you make a call that's wrong, right? You were wrong on Facebook for a long time, right? You were bearish on them, you were wrong on Zynga. Again, the Michael Wolf piece sure. tallies all. Do, are you penalized for for being wrong? What's the penalty for being wrong on a stock? Look, if you are not willing to admit your mistakes, uh, I think there's a very high penalty. I think you know what we do that I think we get a lot of. You know, it's really just part of our my own philosophy of this job is that you need to be just as bold and loud in admitting your mistakes as you are in um, talking about your successes. And so, you know, we're very happy to say, look, we were wrong. I mean, Zynga is a great example. We really saw something in gaming. We came out and we were absolutely wrong. And we came out and said it. And, uh, you know, look. So people who bought Zynga stock based on your advice lost money. Absolutely. And you say, we're sorry about It was that. a mistake. And then you say, but trust us, we're going to get the next X number of Look, calls right, or we're going to do our best to do so. I, I guarantee if we got the majority of our calls wrong, we wouldn't be uh, still where we are. Do you think that, again, the, um, I, I used to work for Henry Blodgett, um, who made sure. his name calling Amazon years ago when he worked at a firm no one knew, many people didn't know. And he, he's quite, quite frank about the fact that the way you make a name for yourself 
uh, on Wall Street, at least as an analyst, and, and in media, at least doing a version of what he does, is you, you take big positions. You say, I don't think Amazon's going to do well. You say, I think Amazon's going to hit 400 back when it's doing 67 or whatever it is. Um, you take bigger swings. You, you take louder positions. Does that open you up on the downside more? Right? You're, you're gonna, you're gonna, you, if you say Amazon's going to 400 and you get it right, you're a celebrity. Is the downside equally big? Or is there less, is, is there less downside to being wrong in this kind of business? Well, obviously, we're not investing actual money. So, yeah. if you were on the, you know, if you had a hedge fund in here and they're actually investing money, there's obviously a greater immediate downside. So, I mean, it'd be illogical for me not to say that if you were an investor versus a analyst, the the actual investor has more direct downside on a bad call. But look, the reality is nobody bats a hundred percent. Nobody bats eighty percent. Stocks and companies are hard to forecast. We think we do it better than most, which is why we are where we are and hopefully the reputation that we've built and we let our reputation speak for itself. But, you know, look, the reality is we spend a lot of time on the thematic side of it. You know, you mentioned at the very outset kind of the futurist side of it. And we really take that to heart because we're really trying to figure out how the pieces move, how the kind of tectonic plates move. You know, we got excited about Netflix. We didn't cover it for many, many years we first got excited about Netflix because we saw what was happening to broadband consumption. So it was spending a lot of time with the cable companies, which we did cover, the Time Warner Cables, the Charters, the Comcast. And it was looking at what was happening to those companies and seeing the usage on the network of something like Netflix and seeing what that meant, therefore, for a company like Netflix relative to the right, legacy people are ecosystem. Time Warner Cable, 100 150 bucks, 200 bucks a month. But there, you can see increasingly through, through outside people that – Holy cow! They're using a lot of Netflix on this network. They're paying Time Warner Cable for. Time and Warner Cable doesn't, doesn't get paid ABC for that. Or they're right. watching less NBC, and you're going, "Wow, there's something here." And so it's really it's looking for those thematic shifts and using that as your way, you know, to make a substantial research call that makes investors money. In the in the old days, back when Henry Blodgett was on Wall Street, the work that he would do, the analyst work, was tightly tied to banking, right? And so there was this connection. The idea was stated or unstated, you would write positive things about a company in hope of getting its banking business. That work has been split up a bit in part because of Henry, right? Or Henry was the sort of symbol for, for what was wrong with that system. You guys are not generally bringing companies public, right? Look, we have a small investment bank that's certainly growing um, you know, off of – you know, was very small and is now growing rapidly, but it's still not the principal part of our business. Right, so and you, you're not compensated. That, and then, by the we're way, we're not there, compensated at all, right? And there are, but there are other folks who are not in that business as well. Uh, Moffat Nathanson, sure. some of those guys who are that were that that business is no longer tethered to banking directly or even indirectly. We have one goal, and you know, I think when you look at the way we approach the stocks, and you made a comment about a lot of companies maybe not always liking us. Our goal is not to make friends. Our goal is to be right. And that's really fundamentally how we think about it. And so our, you know, we we put our research out there, and we kind of walk around with a bullseye on our back every single day. Of you know, here's what we think. We're going to live or die by what we by what we write. And you know, we take pretty passionate positions. You know, you look at something like Pandora, where we've been you know viciously negative uh, from you know right from the outset. You know, no longer have a strong opinion because the stock's fallen to a level where it's no longer interesting on the long or the short side. But you know, that was a place where like there was a, a tremendous, you know, kind of tailwind of of investors loving the idea of what Pandora was doing, and we just fundamentally thought competition was going to crush them. Yeah. Now it seems like the, the real value for Pandora actually is the fact that they have 
a user base that someone else might see value in because there's so little distribution like we were talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah, look, the, when we put a, our original sell thesis was this thing has downside of $10 because at $10, you're roughly at $2 billion. And we thought just the number of users relative to the market cap might make it interesting for someone to acquire. But as a standalone, ongoing, like profitable business, didn't really have value. You said earlier, you and I see each other at these events all the time, again, which is different than other analysts. I tend not to see them at at the, especially we're on startup stuff. You spend a lot of time with startups. You spend a lot of time seemingly either advocating on on behalf of startups. Like, who do I, Cheddar you're a fan of, uh, The Skim, like a company like The Skim, right? We've had them on this podcast. Those guys aren't going to be a public company for a very, very long time. It's much more likely they'll be acquired by a public company. What's the the benefit to you for and your clients for you spending time with fairly small startups? And Cheddar's a very small company. Cheddar, to me, is there's two kind of angles on Cheddar, right? So on the one side of Cheddar. explain what Cheddar is for those people who are not Cheddar is a, uh, I would call it, I mean, they call themselves a post-cable network. You know, I would look at them as they are a direct-to-consumer live video platform that you know will either be um, that you can buy direct, like you buy uh, Netflix, or maybe packaged it's, it's, in with a Sling or other. It's supposed service. to be digital CNBC, millennial CNBC, Absolutely. right? They film at NYSE. It's a very small viewership, right? A couple hundred people at any given time. Um, I think it's actually bigger, it's bigger than, than that, that? now. Okay. Yeah, I think it is bigger than that. I think you should, you should have John couple, on. Let's say it's a couple thousand. Well, look, John would also go an hour, but we can have John on. Look, the what's interesting to me is content that. All of a sudden, so when, when Cheddar is offering service to an MVPD, they're willing to go on just for an advertising revenue share. So whereas that $14 we talked about for Disney, when a Cheddar is willing to go on and just say, share revenue with me, yeah. that's a really disruptive so I, business I, model. So I get that intellectually that's an interesting idea for you. Uh, Aereo is another uh, company that you sure. spend a lot of time with. But again, if you're an investor, you can't invest in Cheddar or Aereo really directly for a long time. Um, do you invest in these things personally? There are some that are out, kind of outside of my core coverage that we do invest in. Yeah, just you personally will put money sure. into Sure. Uh, but like, look, Aereo, how could you, you know, look, ultimately we were wrong. You know, that's a great example of where we had to admit we were wrong because we thought they would win their Supreme because Court case. the Supreme case. Court told you you were wrong. Sure, six yeah. to three, yeah. five to, you know, two votes yeah. the other way and we were right. Uh-huh. But, you know, it's, that's the way this game works. There's no such thing as close uh, in the Supreme Court. It's you win or lose. But it's a new court now, so who knows what would have happened. But, you know, when you look at Aereo, how can you look at the broadcast ecosystem and not have done a ton of research when you think about how disruptive what they were doing was? And actually, in hindsight, the the value they could have offered in fixing the mobile problem that broadcast has and, and TV has, they actually offered a solution that in hindsight probably would have been good for TV programmers, but they couldn't see that the threat to retransmission fees was just too high. It was too destabilizing. This is the company, if, again, it's hard to believe that you're listening to this and don't know what Aereo is, but in case you don't, these guys were, were pulling down uh, broadcast signals, TV signals from the air, and, and passing them along, and the idea was they wanted to sell that as a service. Correct. To, to the consumer. Basically a remote antenna that you can't have, you know, and antennas don't work really well if you live in Manhattan, an antenna in right. your apartment doesn't work well. But this, effectively, this is what Hulu offers now, and a bunch of other uh, services offer now, and, and except they're paying the programmers, and they're selling these bundles for $20, $30, $40 a month, and and the idea was Aereo was going to sell it for 10 bucks a month. Correct. And it not was, pay them. Correct. It was going to leverage the fact that there is this thing called free over the air that any of your listeners that are listening to this could go to Walmart, buy an antenna, and have free ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and Univision at no cost. And yet, 
if they do it through Hulu, they're probably paying at least $3 per network per month for that same quote-unquote free content. And so that was the idea behind Aereo. But look, for us, we spend a lot of time on the technology because, look, all of the things that are disruptive are happening in the private ecosystem. I mean, how could you understand? Like, we, we first met Evan Spiegel when they were 20 people. How can you understand? Evan Spiegel is the CEO of Sorry, Snap. Snapchat. But again, how you're, you're you, not this deep into this podcast right now. No, but look, think about it from our standpoint. How can we be writing research on Facebook and Twitter and not understand what's happening with Snapchat at a very early stage? And so having that understanding of, like, where the disruption is. Like, we had no idea that Snapchat would be a public company in X years. It was, look, there's someone with an app that there's everyone— There's this kid in Santa Monica doing something interesting in Venice. Yeah, why do I want to meet Musical.ly? Why do I want to meet Triller? Like, we, we want to meet every startup company because, we, you know, the only way you learn about where the world is going is through all of these startups. There's so much innovation Someone Someone told me you were doing a, a West Coast startup tour earlier this year. So that's not just you going on the tour, right? That's you taking what your clients so, to introduce know, them? So it's funny. We used to do tours, you know, going back to when I was at Goldman, we would go see, we would do what was called a studio tour and you'd go see the studios. We do trips to LA. We do trips to San Francisco and the Valley, but we see public companies. But you're taking people with you, right? Sure. Or is, yeah. So it's, but, it's um, but, you're, you're, in some ways you're offering access, right? We're going to show you what could be the next new snap. Absolutely. So we're highlighting companies, you know, I mean, we were highlighting, I mean, I was at, I brought investors to see Maker when they were above the taco stand. You know, it was when Courtney had just started. This is Maker Studios. Which Disney ended Disney. up buying. But, you know, we try to see these things taste made, you know, when they were just beginning. I mean, we, we really try to get in early and see what the disruptive technologies are not. And some of them, obviously, we have strong feelings about where they could go and others, you know, are not as interesting. But, you know, we try to meet as many as we possibly can to be an edge in our research. And I think what's interesting is actually a lot of investing clients. You know, if you look at some of the, some really smart investors, I won't get into naming names, but they've been doing the same thing, right? Where they're investing in both public and private companies. You're seeing more and more of that in both the institutional and in the hedge fund world where they're, you know, investing in the private world because it helps them learn, not to mention these companies are growing much bigger before they even go public. Right. But they're learning on both sides about where the world is going. So they're fidelities of the world. Look, I'm not going to name names. But but they are. That's all public, right? You could certainly look at public filings. Big banks are throwing this money around. Rich, good news. We have another advertiser. Here's my friend Lauren with a word from our sponsor, Viacom. Hi, this is Lauren Good of The Verge. We're all fans of something. Me, I'm a fan of yoga, and I'm just starting to get into meditation apps like Headspace, which I know are all the rage right now. I'm not quite sure I'm good at either of those things, but hey, I enjoy them and I enjoy reading about them. And the way that we consume culture is changing. So the way fandom works is changing for people too. I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast called Fan Club, which is about that change and why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on earth. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure out the future of how we're going to watch, listen, and consume culture. He talks to amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things you love. This week, Ross talks with Swiss Beats and with the great Shepard Fairey about how he got his start and shook up the art world. Listen now by subscribing to Fan Club on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back with Rich Greenfield. Besides Netflix, right, which you got right and early on the upside, what, what are you most proud of in terms of calling early? 
Well, Twitter, I think, is you know the one where I feel like it's probably the most differentiated opinion we probably have right now. You know, Netflix is by far still the most controversial stock, even today. It is the most polarizing stock because they don't make money or meaningful money. Um, you know, even the U.S. they make, they lose overseas. But Netflix is the most controversial. Twitter is the most hated. The investors think Twitter is the next Yahoo or AOL, and we have a very different opinion that there is a surge of interest in news and information. Uh, I think whether it's listening to podcasts, talk radio ratings being at a seven-year high, uh, whether it's subscriptions to the New York Times and the New Yorker surging, whether it's CNN and MSNBC's ratings surging, uh, even in a post-election year, there's a thirst for information. Right. And this is one of the things people point out about Netflix in the last year is, boy, you, Donald Trump was elected in part using Twitter. Twitter is – people are literally reporting on the president's tweets daily. Does not seem to have helped the company. In it does though. Yeah. I, mean, I think there, there is – this Now they're saying, well, actually now it's helping. But all last year there was no evidence well, of it. But the big difference was if you were to go back a year ago and you saw a hashtag on TV or you wanted to tweet at someone or someone told you about Twitter and you went on – it wasn't such a great user experience. I mean, it might have been for you know me and you. I would put us in the category we're of hardcore Twitter nerds. We're nerds. Yeah. Like, look, you know, I wish you get we, the little. We, we don't even modify it. We're just nerds. I wish we could get the the, the audio playing from Revenge of the Nerds. Like nerds, yeah. yes. you know, like that's what we are. But for the average person, you go onto Twitter and it was a reverse chronological feed of stuff, and you were like, well, I don't really care what happened two seconds ago. Like, you know, breaking news is critical. I want to know the minute you break a story. You know, you think about the average person, they don't care. They want – what are they interested in? And so breaking the reverse chronology was critical for Twitter. So again, if you go to Twitter now, it no longer tells you this thing happened a minute ago and this thing happened two minutes ago. It's I mean it grouping. may if that's what's it most may. important, but it's probably not. It's – yeah, if, again, if you are a hardcore Twitter nerd like myself, you find that actually disconcerting because you're not it's, – it's a new way of looking at things and there's no real rhyme or reason to it. But I like it because now if you wrote something five minutes ago and I've been sitting here for the last hour recording this with you – I get to see what you yeah. tweeted out. And so, I want to know that you tweeted out something. So you're, you're bullish on Twitter. I was reading one of your recent – I guess it's today's note. Yep. Um, you're bullish on Twitter and you're explaining why you think the, the user base is going to grow and the revenue is going to grow with it. And at the end, you say someone's going to buy this thing. And that's really why you should invest. Am I summing that up correctly? Absolutely. Who's going to buy Twitter? Well, look, every company I cover has a you know, legacy media company. So we put in that bucket Disney, Fox – Viacom, CBS, uh, you know, ultimately I think probably come together. But that kind of combination, I mean, all of these companies haven't figured out how to get onto mobile. They don't understand mobile. They all want to be in the direct-to-consumer business, but they have no data. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Disney can use Major League Baseball, BamTech, and launch a direct-to-consumer spinoff or carve-out of tertiary ESPN content, but they don't know who Peter Kafka is. Do you think that if an old media company buys Twitter, that that is a good thing for the old media company? It's good for Twitter and for their shareholders, right? It's good for Twitter shareholders. Presumably they're paying a premium. You know, if you're taking a look at it on a three-month or 12-month basis, it may not be a good thing, right? I mean, there's going to be a substantial cost to buy it. I mean, you know, I don't know, $15, 20000000000 billion with a premium. Obviously, it loses money, so you're, you know, it's going to be painful. On the flip side... You know, who's playing for the future? The future is mobile devices. The future is in data. And you watch a TV show, and whether it's ABC or whether it's Fox, they don't know who Peter Kafka is. They don't know anything about you or your interests. Right, because they're in the wholesale business. They don't There's have a direct contact with me. None. And that's why, you know, 
companies like Twitter, companies like Spotify, you know, you, Spotify's got 50 million subscribers paying them $10 a month. Tremendous data on what people are interested in and listening to. And the world is all about data. You know, you, you're funny, you, have any, you, you do any discussion across Recode of kind of the, where tech is going, and it's all about data. And here we have an entire industry that's getting, you know, basically getting beaten up day by day because they have no data. They have no direct relationship with I do feel like consumer. sometimes, though, especially when it comes to Twitter, people say, oh, the data, there's a data play here. And Salesforce said that when they sure. wanted to buy it. But Twitter can't do anything with that data, right? Twitter has a very hard time turning that data into a business, sure. um, either for itself or somebody else. It seems like if there was a great treasure trove of data on Twitter, Twitter would be using it. Well, first of all, they are right to show you better tweets. So, you know, think about Instagram. You know, it was, it was one of the one of, one of the women at Instagram was speaking. I forget her name at the Milken conference recently, and she was talking about the impact that the moving from reverse cron to an algorithmic feed made on Instagram. And you know, remember, you used to go onto Instagram and you had people. I'm sure friends of yours, Peter, that overposted. Yep. And it actually created sort of a not so great experience because you just see lots of their posts in a row even if they weren't the ones that you really were interested in. So the move to a, a, an algorithmic feed on Instagram has had a huge impact on their business. They're mining that data, leveraging that data. It's translating into ad dollars for sure. So you think having that direct connection with users, being able to figure out what they're interested in and what they're not interested in is worth something in and above whatever that core business of the company is. This should, this should be another reason to invest in Pandora, right? They've got 70 million users. They've got a good sense of what they want. Well, let's just go back to HBO for a second. So HBO now launched, what, two years ago? And it was all about direct-to-consumer. We're going to have a direct relationship yep. with the consumer. We're going to get all the data. We're going to know who Peter is. We're going to have that relationship. Now probably half of HBO's 2 million subs come from Amazon, where you don't use the HBO Now app. You use Amazon Video. They don't get the data. It's an Amazon, you know, it's basically the, the old wholesale retail relationship. Yep. Instead of going through Comcast or Charter, now it's going through Amazon. Right. Great for Amazon. But do you know why that's happening? Because this is hard, right? Direct to consumer is really, really hard. Right. So a lot of companies are saying, a lot of the old media companies are saying, we're either going to invest in this directly like Disney is, or, or one day we're going to get to it. This is part of the Time Warner pitch or was prior to the sure. AT&T deal. And we're going to have our own direct to consumer business. Is it plausible for these companies to build or buy real direct to consumer businesses? Well, building from scratch is hard. So I mean, I think it, it, when you have no data, what Amazon proves is that once you have an existing subscription, actually, the cable industry, historically, right? Once you have a subscription, hanging a subscription to HBO or Showtime or, you know, you pick your what they, you know, now broadband, having a subscription and then hanging things onto it is much, much easier than starting from scratch. And that may be just overly simplistic, yep. but, it, but history proves it. And out. Amazon's doing it now. And this is kind of part of the Spotify thesis. So we're selling you a $10 music subscription, but one day we're going to sell you something else as well. When you start with nothing, so when you're Disney, like, so imagine Disney in 2020 says we're not renewing our deal with Netflix. We're going to launch Disney content directly to consumers. You're starting with no data on your consumer, no relationships, all your library is still on Netflix for years to come. Right. You're probably selling through Apple and you're Facebook gonna and Google. You're going to be losing tons of money. Yeah. So not only are you not taking the money from, from Netflix – that you, you, know, you mentioned before that they're selling this content and making money off of it. But now you're going to have a big gaping hole because it's not just you're going to lose money on the service, but y you actually have to go out and market and retain. I mean, you know, if I went on to, you know, I'll just because it, it comes to mind, you know, canceling Netflix is what, like two clicks in three seconds? You know, think about the, 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 the friction of 
what happened in the cable ecosystem. I mean, to re- you'd have to actually go return your box to 23rd Street yep. to Time Warner Cable or now Charter. And this is after you spend an hour with them on the phone. With someone trying to offer do. you free six months of service so you don't cancel or free something so you don't cancel. You know, that whole world of marketing to you, customer acquisition, retention, dealing with churn, something media companies are not, you know, they've never had that direct to consumer, you know, skill set. And it's really difficult. And so I think buying their way in to answer your question is critical. The only way they're going to succeed is by making some bold moves to get into that subscription ongoing relationship. Look, if I were Google, I'd do the same thing. If I was Google, I'd buy Spotify tomorrow. I wouldn't let Disney or somebody else buy Spotify. I would want that business to be mine and to build. If I was Apple, I'd go buy Spotify. It's funny. The, the, the Google's mindset, I think, I'm translating fairly from what I've heard, is music's a crummy business. We don't want to be involved. Yep. We, by the way, we hate the music labels. And also, we own YouTube, so we've got that consumer connection. We don't need to buy our way into a direct connection with the consumers. We have, we're Google. Everyone I think the biggest thing I hear about music every time I mention the word music is that's a bad business. And look, Pandora is a free ad-supported business that you know, 12 years into it doesn't make money, and I think it's hard. Spotify has 50 million people who are paying them every single month $10, if not $15 a month, and they've added 20 million subs in just the last 11 months. I mean, that's sort of hard scale, the speed that this is scaling. I think that, you know, when you have a subscription business that's grown that large, the things that you could, and again, it's not just buying Spotify. It's then going in. And the same thing with Twitter, I would say. Obviously, it doesn't have the subscription side. But it's not just buying these assets. It's then investing, right? Like, you can't just be buying these. You have to be willing to spend billions of dollars to go invest and build all the things that you and I are talking this about. This thesis that you take content and then you add it to an existing distribution relationship, this is the public thesis of Time Warner and AT&T. Does that make sense to you? Do you think that, that when AT&T says, boy, we're going to take all the content that Time Warner has and we're going to take our direct relationship with all our phone subscribers and our satellite TV subscribers and we're going to make something awesome, do you, are you bullish on that idea? The, that sounds like a no. Well, because you're still missing. AT&T is a, a wireless broadband provider. Direct consumer relationships, they have my credit card. They do, but they, they don't, you know, you're not using an AT&T app every single day the way you use Facebook, uh, or the way you use Netflix. No, though surprisingly, they think that I will. They think that if they build an app that has content on it, I'll go use it. And, and look, it's possible. But even if I were, you know, again, if I was sitting at AT&T, I would advise them, go buy Twitter, go buy Spotify, go buy a, you know, when you open up everyone, if you just grab any person's phone and you look at the home screen. There's a collection of, you know, call it 12 apps, 16 apps. Most of them are owned by three or four companies. So I would want to own home screen worthy, daily, hourly, minute by minute use case apps that most importantly, people love using. So when Randall Stevenson, this is this will be a few weeks from now, says last week, we're going to use the data we get to figure out that maybe we should make 20 minute episodes <laughs> of, of Game of Thrones. And you don't think that's a good idea. Neither do I. But is it even possible that he's going to get that data? Does he have the ability to look at what's coming through his metaphorical pipes and say, oh, we should do more Game of Thrones or shorter Game of Thrones? Or does he have to have that direct relationship through an app like a Spotify or a Netflix? Look, Randall's got a huge oppor- Randall has a huge opportunity. Let me underscore it. He, he owns one of the world's greatest content creators in HBO. Consumers love, The brand has incredible value. If I were Randall, we would be spending an ungodly amount of money 
making sure Richard Plepler can double, triple, quadruple what he's spending. They should want to take EBITDA margins on HBO down dramatically by investing to build something that rivals Netflix and Amazon. I mean, there's huge potential. We'll see whether they run it the way they've been running it, which is trying to hit EBITDA and, you know, basically enable a sale or whether they really, you know, go for broke and, and gun it do you on think, an investment side. Do you think side. he believes that thesis, that he's going to uh, – there's going to be this synergy between the two things or do you think he has one business that's sort of slow growth, no growth, and he's going to buy another business with some of that money that is also slowing growth? I don't know. It's a lot more interesting than Verizon buying AOL that and Yahoo. That was my next question. So that's uh, the other, that's the other I mean, content If you had to pick like – you, one company has got some of the world's most iconic brands and yes, maybe it's not Disney – you know, in terms of what they've had success in in content. But, you know, I certainly see the potential. First of all, there is a direct consumer. HBO has always fought. Yes, there's the friction of the cable ecosystem, but HBO has essentially fought for Peter Kafka's and Rich Greenfield's dollars because you could cancel it. It's not so easy. It's obviously harder and easier in a direct-to-consumer world, but at least HBO— But they have to go spend $100 bucks on on Game of Thrones because they want something that I'll keep watching. Correct. And that's a skill set that— I think is really important and could be leveraged into a much bigger vehicle. You take, you know, AOL and Yahoo, two applications that don't even exist on mobile, right? Like you, you want things that people are using regularly and content that people must have. I understand what Tim Armstrong is thinking, selling AOL to Verizon. Oh, I got Great that too. I understand why, why if you're running AOL or Yahoo, you'd want to combine. Those are two similar businesses. The more scale is better. What is Verizon thinking? Why does Verizon, which again is not run by dumb people, why do they want to own two arguably, not arguably, two fading internet brands? I don't know. I I really, I can't. There's nothing that makes sense to me. Platforms that aren't even mobile first, you know. Because by the way, they're saying the same thing. Data and video and something, something OTT and, and you'll see. Look, I want to own – if I'm a media or tech company, I want to own daily use case loved apps on mobile. That's the war. It's the war for your time and attention on mobile. That's the first screen. You're competing you know, every day. I mean think about it. YouTube, you're competing every day with YouTube for time and attention. You're competing with Facebook. You're competing with Snapchat. And there's more and more content. How do you win that war? I think unless you buy something like Twitter or like Spotify or both – you're just ultimately a loser because I come back to what you said uh, you know, a while ago, which is the quality of the content is easy for all of these companies. If you woke up tomorrow and Peter Kafka is writing Facebook to invest $9 billion a year in content and they hired the right you – know, there's Ted Sarandos or their Roy Price. There's no question, right, that they could be creating – TV shows that look like House of Cards and movies that look like Manchester by the Sea. There's no doubt that they have the money to do all of this. So does Apple. So does Google. And so I think the scary thing is, is these companies have that direct relationship with the consumer and have the money to fund the content over time. Why do you think Apple, Google, Facebook, those are the three ones that are most obvious and you just mentioned them, aren't committing a lot of money into content? They're all nibbling at it right now. They're all playing around the edges. Facebook is going to pay Fox Media, I just read, to make content. But it's all – it's not even a toe touch, right? It's the tip of the toe. Why, why not – they've seen – and they've seen how it works for Amazon and Netflix. And by the way, that amount of money would not be material to any of those companies to spend $9 billion a year on content. 
Why aren't they doing it? I think it's kind of walk before you run, right? I mean, Netflix went into it, saw the success it had, and started spending a lot more money. Uh, I think a lot of these companies are data-driven. You know, take Amazon. They weren't making major moves in music until they realized that 65% or so of commands on Alexa were music-driven. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're seeing you know, their music team everywhere and Alexa everywhere, and it's all about music and the opportunity. They're data-driven. And so I think the three companies you mentioned, uh, you know, Apple, Google, and Facebook, it's early. Google was doing, you know, think about the where they basically were paying for people to create channels yep. on Google. That was probably, what, four years ago, yep. I want to say? And then they did YouTube Red a couple of years ago where it was we're going to create stuff behind a paywall. But now it's, okay, let's go hire Ryan Seacrest. Let's create a show that looks like The Voice but actually happens on YouTube. So that took, you know, call it four years to get to – Yeah, but why that – caution for companies that, you know, again, like Google is the company that paid, what, $12, 13000000000 billion for, which was it, which, which mobile company? Uh, Motorola, right? And then a couple months later said, ah, actually, we're going to sell most of it off. Like these guys can move much more quickly when they want to. There's something about content that either they're not interested in or that makes them nervous or something. Apple's doing carpool karaoke without James Corden, right? So if they wanted to do, you know, if they wanted to do House of Cards, there's no doubt Apple has the money to right. produce. As you, you, know, you had Eddie at your conference yep. this year. If Eddie Q wanted to create as much content as Netflix, yeah, look, he may in four years. I mean, we may look back in four years yep. and go, that your conference was that kind of demarcation line of the beginning. You think they're uh, waiting on sports and that's, that's what they'll spend their money on first? Look, Amazon did their first deal, right? I mean, Amazon now is doing NFL games. Right, again. But it's Twitter, at least, has proven that there's not a lot of audience for that. And again, there's Amazon spending $50 million. It's not much. It seems like one of the ways these guys might do it is they might spend billions of dollars to actually buy TV rights. It's certainly, the NFL is hoping they'll bid that much. Sure. I mean, look, I remember when Rupert Murdoch came in in 1994 and took the rights away and started broadcasting NFL yep. games. I mean, what, what so happens to the value? Fox, that's how Fox was built. Absolutely. There's no debating historically. That's how Fox was built. Imagine in, in 2019, you hear that the NFL contract for Monday Night Football is leaving ESPN and going to Amazon for 2021. What happens? Like the whole ecosystem shatters if that happens. We're at the hour mark, so we should wrap this up. I have an, one last investing question. I can't invest in stocks because I write about this stuff. If I didn't have that conflict, every bit of advice I've ever read, and sometimes I've written it, for personal investors says you should not invest in personal stocks. You should put your money in an index fund and sort of forget about it, basically. <laughs> um, you're in the business of recommending stocks. Should, should people whose day job is not investing, people who are listening to this, should they be investing personally in stocks? Look, we don't invest in personal stocks. Or, I, mean, I don't invest in stocks that I cover. I don't want the conflict of – you know, I own or don't own a given stock. It's just, you know, I like being as independent in my research on public companies as I possibly can. For consumers, I, look, we don't deal, our business is not retail at all. And so I have no advice to give to retail investors. People should not be trading individual stocks based on your research. If, if they're a ma and pa, if they're a... Our research is clearly directed at institutional investors who do this for a living. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> Or grown-ups. But we will try to make you smarter no matter who you are. And it's free, right? You can read your research for free. You just got to sign up. You know, you certainly can follow us on Twitter. Um, we let, you know, we, we try to have an ongoing conversation with the, the industry uh, about where the world is going. Follow Rich for free on Twitter when you're done listening to this podcast. 
Rich, thanks for talking for an hour. I appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. It was great to be here. Thanks to you guys for listening. Again, there's plenty more free content just like this. Um, Recently, we talked to Michael McKean from Better Call Saul. That's up now, and the final episode is right around now as well, so you should go listen to that and watch that. Um, I talked to Amir Barlev, directed a uh, Grateful Dead documentary for Amazon called Long Strange Trip. It's a long strange trip of a movie but it's great you should go watch that and listen to that podcast you can get them all at apple Podcasts, google play any other fine podcast purveyor please tell your friends uh more free stuff is coming your way from our code conference some of the media moguls we've been talking about um we're on our stage sherry redstone from viacom anthony noto who's the ceo of twitter dean bacay runs the new york times they all spoke to us and you can hear what they had to say again for free over at recode replay I'd like to thank all our sponsors today, LegalZoom, Norton Core, and Viacom. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells all those ads so we can bring you all this free content. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, and Chris Basil, who edits all this stuff. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.